I'm Bob Costanza. I'm a professor at uh, the Crawford School of Public Policy at uh, Australian National University. Thank you for joining us, Bob. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here at the Sustainable Prosperity Conference. Uh, we, David, David and I really enjoyed your talk and we were actually uh, really significantly impressed with the uh, inclusion of social capital, I think, mm. and as part of your ecological frameworks. It's interesting because we, we talk about it a little bit on the podcast, funnily enough, and uh, social capital, but not necessarily in economic terms. Has it been a bit of a going against the grain mm. in including that? Uh, do you find that a lot of your contemporaries uh, kind of follow that line? Um, I think I think broadly, yes. Mm. I mean, I think there's there is a growing recognition uh, mm-hmm. that, and as I was saying, I think what we really need to do is change our focus, you know, away from this mindless, you know, uh, pursuit of GDP and and mm-hmm. uh, conventional economic income towards a much broader conception of sustainable well-being. And once you ta- once you start talking about well-being, uh, then it's clear from all of the psychological research that's gone on that you know people's uh, social interactions, their relationship with their friends and family and community, and, and the rest of society, that's all extremely important to, to people's ongoing well-being. Uh, so you can't ignore uh, social capital if you talk. Once you've made the the shift to well-being and away from simply income and, and growth. You also can't ignore natural capital, you know, all of the things that nature is doing for us that keeps our society, you know, viable and, and sustainable. So, so I think that was the main point I was trying to get across. You really need to consider the whole system and how, it, how this complex, you know, interaction between those four basic types of assets and, uh, and how they contribute to, to well-being and its, and its sustainability. So, yeah. It, it seemed very important too, from what you were saying today, that the thing of bringing so many people together to get cross-disciplinary work and your know, discipline, also cross-regional work, so we get a broader picture across broader areas. Yeah. So the idea in social capital of you know, bridging social capital, how do you bring people together who don't have a common social or cultural link? Well, you could bring them together through living in a common environment, mm-hmm. relying on similar physical resources. Right. That a reconnection with you know, wilderness with the land around us, with the sky above us, you know, the, the ground under our feet should actually be a good way to get people involved, shouldn't it? Or indeed. I hope it would be. Yeah, indeed. And, and getting people to work together to solve problems um, because the problems we're facing now are not going to be solved from the perspective of any one group, any one discipline, any one country, any one anything. I mean, they're, we're facing it now in this uh, new geologic epic that we're in called the Anthropocene. You know, we're recognizing how, how much impact humans are having on the environment and how much people depend on the environment for their, for their continued well-being. So but we've come isolated in these different disciplines and groups and countries, and really we need to refocus on what our shared goal is. You know, so the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, you know, I think is a really interesting step in that direction. You know, so there's these 17 goals that all countries in the world have, have agreed to, even Australia, you know, and they're much broader than, than simply maximize GDP, you know, eliminate hunger and, you know, sustainable consumption and production and dealing with climate, you know, rapid action on climate change. So people should really look into that, you know, go online and search for the uh, sustainable development goals. And I think it's a significant step forward in building the shared vision. I think we have a lot further to go because I think those goals are not really well known among the, the general public. Uh, I think that that's that's uh, that, that has to happen. We need to bring that discussion um, out to the broader public. What kind of world do we really want? 
as Yogi Berra said, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you end up somewhere else. So where is it that we're going? Um, that, that, I think, is the key thing that needs to change. And one thing we've been working on recently is there is, I think, a broad consensus that we're going in the, in the wrong direction. Uh, the, the problem is, well, why haven't we been making more progress? What's, what's holding us back? Uh, if we know that renewable energy is cheaper and, you know, than, than, uh, than fossil fuels, if we, we know the solutions to the problems, but we really haven't been implementing them. So one thing we've been doing recently is trying to think of this problem as an addiction, you know, as, uh, anal analogously to uh, individual addiction. And what can we learn from what works at the individual scale, you know, to overcome this, this societal addiction that we have to, to economic growth, to fossil fuels, et cetera. And they're, they're addictions for the same reasons. They have very, you know, positive short-term reinforcements, and we know that they're going to have long-term negative consequences. So how do you break out of that, that cycle? One therapy that works at the individual scale is something called motivational interviewing where you focus the addict on discussing their life goals. You don't confront them with the problem, you know, and say, you've got to stop doing what you're doing. Say, let's talk about what you want to achieve with your life. Once you've established that, then you can go back and say, well, is what you're doing now really helping you achieve those goals? And if not, maybe you want to change, you know, but it motivates them to change themselves. The way we've been framing this problem, you know, for society is, is that very confrontational, negative, you know, yes, we've got, we've got to stop doing this, which is true in both cases, absolutely. But, you know, does it really produce the kind of behavioral change that we want at the societal scale? So the analogy at the societal scale for this motivational interviewing is really first having this discussion of our life goals, our societal, societal goals, you know, the SDGs, but beyond that, how do we... How do we get entire society engaged in this discussion? Which is what I think democracy really should be all about. You know, we don't need to necessarily vote on all of the details. We need to have a, this broad consensus of what we're trying to achieve as a society. And I think that gets us back to sustainable well-being, because I think broadly people will, will agree that that's, that's really what our goals should be about. Just sort of going to two things from you know, that, Bob, that I think are really interesting out of what you just said. The first thing of you know, going back into well-being, so something like Martin Seligman's work on you know, positive psychology, where he's now changed that to flourishing, yeah. where one of the big things in you know, the acronym, you know, PERMA, uh, positive emotions, engagement, relationship, meaning, accomplishments, right. it's really what would you like to accomplish in your life? So that's where that motivational thing to my mind, it's tapping deeply into Martin Seligman's idea. If you can identify what you want to accomplish, you can see all the things that you're already doing that contribute right. and then add to that. So you double down on the positive, which makes the positive more you know, powerful than the negative. Right. The other side is to jump back and go, you know, how did we get into the situation we're in of having you know, the sustainable development goals, but in a sense, most people not knowing. I largely teach security subjects around the university here. And to my mind, you know, when human security emerged as an area of study after the Rwanda genocide, there was all this positive understanding that humans were more than sort of state security. They needed more than just safe borders. Yeah. And that, that human security movement, in my opinion, largely underpinned what turned into the Sustainable Development Goals. It said for people to have good lives and feel safe, and they have to feel safe before they often have good lives... You need to provide all these positive things. And the terrible thing is just as that was starting to gain ground, we had 9-11, invasion of Afghanistan and invasion of Iraq, and we normalised a war footing. So security, which was becoming broad and encompassing of well-being, 
got reduced back to fear of the terrorist, fear of the, the dirty bomb. Yeah. And it's almost like it doubled us back down on our negative. So you do you find when you're going out and talking to people, it's like you're having to convince people who've absorbed so much negativity in terms of the politics of our era, the climate problems of our era, that it's almost debilitating. Yeah, for sure. But I think that's to break out of that cycle. I think we need to then start having that discussion. About yeah, the positive what, becomes so important. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's often ignored. We, it's so easy to focus on the problems and how bad the problems are. And we, you know, we admire these problems to death, yeah. you know, and analyze them in more and more detail. Um, but I think that's, and that's not bad, but I think that has to be balanced with, you know, a, a focus on what kind of world do we want? What are the positive things that are already happening? How can we accelerate that? I really like Martin Seligman's, you know, uh, PERMA acronym and, uh, and all of those things. And I think you can scale that up you know, yeah. to the societal scale. And I think that's another part of the problem. It's not just every individual doing, doing these things. It's really you have to change the whole system, the whole society. Because people are getting incentives and feedback and you know rewards from the larger society, and if they they are sort of fighting, having to swim upstream against those incentives, um, it's just going to be not not sustainable, not not very well. We have to change those incentives, so it's not so difficult for people to uh, to do the right thing, which actually does contribute to not only their own but to you know society's uh, well-being and to nature's well-being. You know, so it's it's really about the, the whole system. It's not the economy versus the environment. It's we're all on the spaceship Earth together, and you know we're, that we're uh, uh, we have to recognize that in the Anthropocene. We have to. You can't ignore that any longer. We can't just assume that nature's going to take care of itself. You know, we're we have to recognize what we're doing for nature, what nature's doing for us, uh, and how we can maximize that the benefits of that that whole system. Uh, and a, and a big part of that is getting over this addiction to. To GDP, essentially, to the, this this uh, philosophy that came out of World War II. I mean, we, you know, GDP is, is not a bad thing in any sense. It probably helped us to win World War II uh, because you know we had to figure out how do we produce all of these weapons and airplanes and guns, and you know that was an essential feature. How do we make this economy work? You know, <clears throat> for to produce all and consume all of these things. But we've gotten stuck in that that mode of thinking. When now, you know, that's those the built capital is no longer the limiting factor to producing uh, increase, increasing well-being. Uh, quite the contrary. Now it's it's natural and social capital that are the limiting factor that are being degraded by a lot of the things that we're, we're doing, and that we need to refocus on that larger picture and say how do we how do we build social capital? How do we build? How do we restore natural capital? That's going to that's going to improve well-being uh, much more than than uh, consuming more things that we don't really need. And it's that interesting question of, you know, we used to need more to win. And that's where it's so important, as you were saying in your presentation this morning, we need to define what we want. Right. Because the moment we know we don't want the mess, we don't want the bushfires, we don't want degradation of the environment, we don't want all sorts of things. But it seems that somewhere after World War II, we also threw out the idea that it's okay to imagine utopia. And by not imagining utopia, we're now not even willing to imagine better. Right. Yeah, we seem to have this immense problem that in supposedly being in a post-ideological age, we've also given up the courage to imagine better and the path to it mm. broadly you know, with the kind of conviction that was a common part of 
you know, the developed world probably from the late 19th century through to, I guess, probably the, you know, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that we, we can and have to change. You know, we have to bring that back onto the, into the discussion. That's what, that's what you guys need to do in every podcast. Say, what kind of world uh, do, you, do you really want? You know, are we headed in that direction? Are we headed in a different direction? And uh, why, don't we, why don't we have that discussion as being the, the key thing? Yeah, because it is probably a quiet thing we do without directly addressing it. If what we're really talking about is educating and empowering, yeah. Again, I can't help having been trained as an, an anarchist philosopher, and that is not wanting to tell anyone what to do. I'm more than happy to work with anyone who will make a better world as long as they don't make me make their better world. Mm. You know, if we can agree on it, even better. But the problem is we don't even have those kind of discussions in society. Being that you are in a public policy school, how are public policy schools within university approaching how to get diverse groups of people together and how to get multiple perspectives on the table. Is mm-hmm. there a growth of a methodology mm-hmm. coming out of public policy that we can all learn about and try and employ? Well, one, one that I know about is this idea of a synthesis center. Uh, there have been uh, several of these, uh, one in the U.S. that I've been, uh, a couple I've been involved with. The idea there is you, you pick an important problem or topic that you know requires, you know, this uh, transdisciplinary uh, cross-sectoral participation to solve. And you put people from those different perspectives together, you know, in a, in a format that empowers them to, to, uh, uh, to think differently, to be innovative, to come up with, with new ideas. You don't sort of prescribe what the result's going to be. Uh, this is why it's often hard to get these kinds of things funded because you can't say this is the result, what the result's going to be. You can't guarantee a result. You can only guarantee the opportunity. Right. Yeah. And this is where innovation comes from. When you put, you know, diverse groups, uh, people focused on a common problem. Uh, to, that that really needs their participation to solve and gives them the the space and the time and the rewards uh, for for actually doing that. Uh, so there are these centers where they they basically do that. They have you know working groups that come in for you know a week or a month or you know over a period of time, uh, but without a whole lot of constraints. You know, other than here's the important problem that we're trying to solve. So the, the paper that I mentioned in my talk about the value of the world's ecosystem services that we published back in 1997, well, that, was, that came out of one of these synthesis center um, you know, working groups. And that's the great thing about compressed time too, and Google have proved this uh, with their Google venture model, and they call it Google Sprint, mm-hmm. where they take, you know, pick the idea on Monday and by Friday, deliver a minimum viable product yeah. because it keeps everyone focused and everyone doesn't get distracted by their life. And you have to you have to you have to construct a common language yeah. to have that discussion. So yeah. you, so all these things about your disciplinary background and history, that becomes you know well yeah that's where I was born but now we're here working on this problem. Yeah, we so, got to contribute now. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, one of the best examples I can think of, and again I'll go back to there. I know with security that you know under General Stanley McChrystal in Iraq, um, you know American special forces essentially moved from being totally hierarchical to at the time more of a network model but by pulling in every single stakeholder in real time and sharing as much intelligence and information mm. as they possibly could mm-hmm. and just saying we're in this together let's share information and get on with it and it was transformative yeah. but they got into it because they were losing yeah and it's almost like back to the wall as much as it's terrifying well, also for humans seems to be an advantage well, I think our backs are to the wall. Yeah, now. absolutely. And here I think our feet might Earth. be on fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so uh, another way of looking at this, uh, I read a good book many years ago by Deborah Tannen called The Argument Culture. 
And her point, she's a, she was a, a linguist, and her point was that uh, a lot of our problems are that we, we frame everything in society as an argument, as a debate. You know, there's a right and there's a wrong. And, you know, certainly some problems fit that, that model, but the kinds of complex issues that we're talking about certainly don't. And that framing it as an argument is counterproductive because, you know, you, you form sides, you have, you know, you, you, uh, you endlessly debate, you know, from one side or the other, and, and you never really uh, get anywhere. And so what's really needed is a shift away from argument and debate to discussion and consensus building. You know, you're never going to necessarily get to a, a total agreement, but you need to have, you know, an informed discussion that can build the synthesis and can build build some shared understanding uh, of the problem and help you move towards solutions. Because as long as we stay trapped in the argument culture, we're, we're just going to, you know, we'll, we'll never get any answers. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, we were talking to Tyson Young-Caporta, um, you know, the Indigenous uh, presenter from yesterday. And in his book, he talks about the idea of, you know, people together, they yarn. The process is yarning mm-hmm. because it's not about what I bring and what you bring being separate. In the end, we both take away so much more and something new is created. And mm-hmm. then the next person who enters that yarning space adds more and more. Mm-hmm. So you know, at an intellectual level, an awful lot of cultures a very long time ago worked out how to get beyond argument. Mm-hmm. In public policy terms, I sort of remember the late 90s, early 2000s, Anne-Marie Slaughter working on the idea of transgovernmentalism of getting people together but not making decisions that affected sovereignty, mm-hmm. saying take a shared set of recommendations home and say, well, this is what we all agreed, something like this, if we all did something like it. Yeah. Is there still a move to do stuff like that? Is that still part of the international debate? Yeah, and I think the whole idea of deliberative democracy, as it's called, I think is... That's the new title for it? Yeah, okay. that's the new title for it. <laughs> Which, you know, as a process, it says that that's what democracy should be about, is getting people to sit together and deliberate and bring in experts, you know, but they're, so the idea that there's, it even goes so far as that instead of having elections, we should have, you know, sortition. Which yeah, we were talking about yeah. that with Cameron yesterday, because yeah. I'm at the point of saying that, you know, all politics should be done that way. Yeah. We randomly select people yeah. from the from the society, general populace. from the general population. If you really want to represent society, that, represent that, it. That, that's represent it rather than the uh, sort of easily corrupted way that we yeah. are doing it. Which now. means the three of us would probably, if we got the letter in the mail, would probably go, "Oh golly, what a responsibility!" <laughs> well, I better put my brain to use. Yeah, off I go. Yeah. Now you're already but, in Canberra, so at least you don't have to move. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't think they've picked up on deliberative democracy or sortition quite yet in, no, <laughs> in no, Canberra. No, I'm, I'm not sure they ever will. <laughs> uh, but those processes, I think, can be can be helpful. I think what what's often missing from those processes is giving the uh, the group that they select the actual decision making power over the to take the, action at the yeah, end of the yeah yeah. So it's, it's like it's when you easy enough to say you know go yeah. talk about it and tell us what what you thought, you know, and then we can ignore it. Yeah. Uh, but if there's actually some decision-making authority, you know, given to that group, I think it can make a, a huge difference. And particularly too because of the responsibility that then adds to the discussion, the decision-making and the recommendation. Mm-hmm. It's not just you're doing it because you're here. You're doing it and you have to live with the consequences of yeah. what you put your name to. Yeah. Yeah. And the and the experience with that process shows that they often come up with much better you know policies and decisions than than you would get from any one group you know by its by itself. Yeah, because they've still got the open mind to well, I don't know what's not possible. Right. And if we can all agree it's worth a try, well, let's try. And if you can get that level of agreement from a diverse group, then you know when you put it out there to society, which consists of the 
those diverse groups, then uh, it's going to have a better chance. Yeah, you're much likely to get an acceptance that, well, this was decided by people like me and people very different to me, yeah. none of whom had an agenda or were benefiting. Right. right. So, you, you know, the minute you take out personal benefit, it's much easier to trust people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm going to bring this slightly full circle because it, it's clear to me that perhaps even the entire university at ANU or perhaps even just your work is very transdisciplinary, which is a new word that I've just learned from you. Uh, and that you clearly, which you are, we picked up from your talk, you were taking information from different groups who would have probably had different interests so they wouldn't have been unbiased in the way that you guys were just talking about but as the university is a microcosm let's say of this kind of democracy you're approaching a problem from different disciplines let's say psychology with Martin Seligman like we've referenced or even Maslow like we kind of picked up in in some of your diagrams even Mm -hmm. and you've got the environmental policy there's probably a bit of anthropology in there with the Anthropocene security because it's me I can't always (laughs) exactly and then you know of course your economics you've got then five different kinds of people who are approaching the problem from a diverse background and then coming to a solution I think uh, a great credit to you for being I think probably the most um, diverse kind of interdisciplinary presenter so far Mm. Well, maybe, maybe I could put in a plug for the, uh, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, check that out online. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a conference in uh, the Gold Coast this coming June called mm-hmm. the Eco Summit. That might be mm-hmm. uh, interesting for people to, to come to and hear more about these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bob Costanza, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your time. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.